This episode of the ACB Advocacy Update has been made possible in part through the support of ACB of Minnesota. You're listening to the ACB Advocacy Update. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of ACB of ACB Advocacy Update. I am your host, Swapa Nandakumar. ACB's Advocacy and Outreach Specialist, and joined by Clark Rockfall, ACB's Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs. Hey, Clark, how are you? Doing well, Swatha. How are you? I'm doing well as well. So, got quite a, got quite a topic today for, for our podcast. So, yes, we do. And I know everyone's, uh, you know, very excited and fulfilled coming off of the Uh, first ever hybrid ACB conference and convention. And we're certainly thankful to everyone who's joining us via the ACB media network, as well as uh, either listening, downloading via your favorite podcast player. And as always, you can learn more about the American Council of the Blind by visiting www.acb.org. The topic is all about the Braille literacy rate. Um, So the title of the article is How Many Braille Readers? Policy, Politics, and Perception. Uh, We're joined by a long-standing ACB member and president of the ACB affiliate, the Braille Revival League, uh, Mr. Paul Edwards. Good evening, Paul. How are you? Hey, sir. Thanks for having me here. All right. Thanks, Paul. And joining us for this recording are the authors of this article. So longtime friend of ACB, uh, Dr. Rebecca Sheffield, who is an education program specialist for the U.S. Department of Education. But uh, Dr. Sheffield, you are here tonight in your own personal capacity. That's right. And how are you doing, Rebecca? Great. Uh, It's a nice day here outside Washington, D.C. And looking forward to the conversation. And great. Glad glad to have you back. I don't know if you've ever been a guest on the ACB Advocacy Update before, uh, but glad to have you on the program for this exciting topic. Thanks. Uh, And we also have doctoral candidate, Sarah Chatfield. Sarah, how are you doing? I'm well, thanks for having me on today. And Sarah, what is your doctoral uh, area of focus? Um, My dissertation is looking at Braille skill acquisition in hybrid settings, so uh, remote and in-person and comparing those. All right. It uh, it sounds like you all are the, the appropriate folks to be the authors of this article and certainly more qualified on the topic uh, than I am. And last but not least, we are joined by uh, Dr. Mary Frances DeAndre, Assistant Professor of Practice at the University of Pittsburgh. And Frances, uh, excuse me, Francis, uh, Francis Mary, you said this is why you said I can call you FM for exactly. sure. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Yes, I'm so used to that that uh, I 
didn't even blink an eye and say, oh, well. So yes, people call me FM for that exact reason. So thank you. Well, thank you so much, FM. And thank you to everyone for joining us here for this, this conversation. Swatha, you gave me the hard part um, that I just muddled my way through. So I will, <laughs> will turn it over to you to get this conversation started. Yeah. So, um, so Rebecca and Sarah and um, Mary, no, not Mary Francis, FM, FM. Um, can you guys tell us about your background and um, like specifically for, for Sarah and Rebecca, um, why do you guys do, 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 do research? Thanks, Swatha. So um, this, it has, this um, research has been many years in the making, I should say. So um, we, at the, at the time that um, we were getting started, I was a senior policy researcher at the American Foundation for the Blind. And FM and I were in regular communication about Bannon, Braille, and things like that. And we met a, an amazing researcher from the Smith Kettlewell Eye Institute um, named Dr. Val Marash. And um, through conversations, we realized that all three of us were dealing with questions about Braille literacy. So um, I got all sorts of questions at, in my job at AFB, ranging from, um, you know, uh, how many dog guide users are there? You know, what's the population of blind people in Pittsburgh? <laughs> and, and very frequently folks wanted to know how many, how many Braille readers are there? Um, and you can think of lots of reasons um, ranging from the, what's the market for something that has Braille on it that, that I might want to sell to um, the US Department of Education needing to know how many Braille teachers should should be being prepared. You know what? What are um, what are the needs of students in the United States with respect to Braille? So, I had the question, and you know, I FM had seen this question. Um, Val, working at Smith Kettlewell, was interested in this question from a, you know, a technology perspective, and we realized that there was a number that that was showing up in a lot of art of um, especially mainstream media publications advocacy pieces this 10 percent number saying oh 10 percent of blind people can read braille and usually that was raised in a, in a negative way right that that's that's problematic that only 10 percent of blind people can read braille but nobody knew where the number came from so that got us started um collaborating unfortunately um you know i'm sure we'll talk shortly about like exactly what we did. But but um, the reason that Val is not here with us today is that she passed away during the course of our research project. But, um, you know, in, in doing this article, we are really um, honored to be able to, to share just a small part of her many contributions to our field. But that's kind of how it got started um, around 2016. When you would see that statistic used, there wasn't ever any citation about where that came from. It just kind of became lore, I think. And this is Sarah. I just agree with what Rebecca and FM have stated that it, when I, uh, when my son was born um, and I was first, I had never met a person who was blind before. And I'd been living with my son for four months before I even knew he was blind. So I was really starting at ground zero. And um, the 10% statistic was, something that you encountered in the 
like when I was doing my research about what it meant to be a Braille reader, um, that was something I encountered a lot, very often. And so I was super honored to be included on this team with um, Val's work and with Re Rebecca and FM. So to really confront where that number was coming from and how accurate or, or even if we have any answers about how accurate it is. So to get to what, what we did um, next was um, Val helped us with some um, research methods that, that she had used before and she helped to design um, a systematic literature review, which kind of has a lot of rules like for, for what you can include in your research. So we used databases. We ended up using hand search, meaning we went to um, the the shelves, the bookshelves in the conference room of AER and places like that, looking for old journal articles with our, our research questions basically being, what is the percentage of people in the United States um, and how many people in the United States read Braille and what articles have attempted to answer that? And we went all the way back to the early days of Braille and, and, and just scoured and collected any published articles, um, peer reviewed articles that mentioned that statistic. And then from there, you, you go to the reference lists of those articles and say, okay, they included something about Braille literacy. What was the citation that they used? If they used a citation, you know, what was their source and tried to be as thorough as possible in, um, tracking down those, those sources and, um, and looking basically to document the history of, re of reporting and research on what we might consider a Braille literacy statistic. A big problem, of course, as you all know, is that um, there's so many ways to, that you might think about somebody being a Braille reader. So one article might consider a Braille reader being a student in a specialized school who's receiving um, daily instruction in Braille and uses Braille for their textbooks. Another study, maybe thinking about the National Library Service, is someone who's ever ordered a book in Braille. And a another study could, be, could just be thinking about someone who might be able to use Braille in a functional way during their day whether or not they are primarily a braille reader or not. So the, all these definitions started to make, um, to make it obvious that this is a really complicated question. Not to mention then, what is the who do we consider the population of people who are blind or visually impaired? And different articles are gonna use different definitions for that. So in the process of doing this um, literature review, we were also documenting all the complexities behind what seems like a simple question, but is really actually a very, very uh, multifaceted, multi-layered topic. Thank you. And before we dig uh, deeper here into the the research and the findings, uh, I'm still stuck on the question of why. And uh, Paul, as the president of Braille Revival League, why is the Braille literacy rate important? Why is this topic significant for ACB, our members in the broader community? I think that the survival of Braille is uh, actually, in some respects, an open question. We're sort of at, <clears throat> excuse me, a crossroads now, and, and really, in some respects, a very exciting crossroads. It's likely that within the next three to five years, the National Library Service will be distributing 
e-readers, that is electronic devices that will enable folks to read Braille to anyone in the country who can benefit from it. So the question is, how many people are there who can benefit? And what do we mean by people who can benefit? And uh, is it okay for a person who can read at 25 words a minute or, or, or who has never learned beyond grade one Braille, which is Braille with no contractions, um, to be regarded as, as a fully literate Braille reader? Um, so it's extremely important to at least have some understanding of how many Braille readers there are, because the, the issue is as well that there is a huge groundswell and really has been ever since it came along that essentially says blind people don't need Braille. They can survive perfectly well by utilizing speech from computers and by using assistance from others in, in, in order to navigate the world in which they have to try to work and be successful. The truth is we in the Braille Revival League, and, and I suspect all three of our guests believe that instead Braille represents one of the keys to employment without good braille skills and without a capacity to use braille well the chances are pretty substantial that the level of employment that folks who are blind are likely to be able to achieve will be considerably lower than it will be for folks who are good braille users is there anything that our guests would like to add to the just the overall importance of being able to, to determine what exactly the Braille literacy rate is and what that means for people who are blind? FM, I'll let you start on this one. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Well, there certainly are policy issues. If we're looking at um, how many teachers do we need? Um, how many textbooks do we need? How many Braille transcribers do we need? Do we have sufficient? How do we know if we have sufficient? Um, how can we prepare um, for um, standardized testing? Um, so from, since I'm kind of in the K-12 world, the, or pre-K-12 world, I'm always thinking about the kind of educational issues related to that. And if we already know that there are, there's a shortage of teachers of students with visual impairments, we already know that there, you know, teachers are retiring and we wanna make sure there are sufficient numbers of teachers who are coming along. Um, it's helpful to, for, from a, um, just from a, a policy, uh, a, a state and federal policy standpoint to know, um, are we prepared? Uh, do we have enough personnel? So that, that was one issue that kind of um, came to my mind. Sarah and Rebecca, do you have other things that? I'll, I'll, when I was in, in Sarah's shoes and working on my dissertation, and I focused on topic of quality of life. And because I feel like sometimes we measure something like employment and while well, if people are employed, then that that's it. You know, that's great. But, you know, Braille and literacy and employment, I see all as tools for um for people to maximize their quality of life. And um, in, my, in my own dissertation research, I found that, that literacy and independent access to, um, to written material is, was, was key to the folks that I interviewed. Um, and, and of course, to, to all of the 
um, people that I've met in my work at AFB and and working as a TBI. It's um, it's it's there's no doubt about the importance of Braille and and um, early and appropriate Braille instruction for students, as well as um, you know through, throughout the throughout folks' lives. It's um, I would you know never consider not teaching or or making print available to a child who can benefit from print. And likewise, I think um, making sure that we have the systems in place to to provide um, Braille for those who will benefit from and can use and want to use Braille is equally important. But Sarah, I think has has a passionate mom answer, which is incredibly <laughs> important as well. <laughs> Try not to bring that angle in, but I think well, I, I do, I have that, I have a mama, a mama attitude about it. You know, this is a tool that a person with low vision or no vision needs to have access to. And I think knowing what braille literacy means um, and knowing uh, what's happening um, in our country, we can ask harder questions like, do you think the right people are getting access to high quality teachers and to relevant and interesting materials? And furthermore, like I think it's super problematic for me to say a student is illiterate um, and reading 40 words per minute contracted and, and, and putting them in a classroom where their sighted peer is reading 80 right. to 120 words per minute, that can be incredibly demoralizing for a student. And um, if they were sighted, this would um, open up a, not, not it doesn't preclude them from getting additional supports, but I wanna have access to a lot of literature that um, supports these students so that they can become really confident uh, braille readers. And it, this was one of, I think this was a really important first question, not a first question, but a really important question that needed to be answered. Um, so I was again, super honored to be included. All right, now I'm hooked. You got me, I'm, I'm convinced. <laughs> Rebecca kind of walked us through the high level, like summary of how, of how you guys did your research, but um, would you like to add things, Sarah or FM? Uh, this is FM, I can jump in and just say, <clears throat> Uh, going back through the literature search and finding as many articles as we could, we went back to the early 1900s and we tried to find as many articles as we could that mentioned Braille. But in any kind of research like this, when you're doing a literature search, you have to do a very um, careful definitions so that you have defined what exactly you're looking for and what to include and what not to include. And so we were looking for actual original research that was had been peer reviewed that had um, that mentioned some sort of rate or statistic and told told how that statistic was um, was given. So we tried to be very systematic about it. And I think that's also really important is that we were very systematic about what exactly we were looking for and what to include and what not to include. Because again, we were trying to get away from kind of hearsay or lure or um, popular opinion or something, but really think, okay, where did this actual research come from? And, you know, was it, um, was it, 
carefully done, high quality research and, and, and how. So that's, I think that's also really important to, to know is that we had to set those definitions from the very beginning. And FM, if I could stay with you, uh, you know, you mentioned the the ten percent Braille literacy rate, and you know whether it's hearsay, lore, or uh, just passed on by word of mouth. It actually reminds me a lot of the the unemployment rate for people who are blind. Everybody knows the unemployment rate is seventy percent <laughs> for people who are blind. Uh, so where did the ten percent figure come from, and why may it be inaccurate? Well, it appears to have come from, and Rebecca and Sarah, correct me if I'm wrong, it appears to have come from a telephone survey that was done in the 1970s that was looking at numbers of Braille users and it then got kind of extrapolated into a larger estimate in the 90s, like 17 years later or something. And then from there, it just kind of took on a life of its own. And so it kind of just got, it was, um, as, as Rebecca said, it was sort of like a game of telephone. I don't know if when you were kids and you'd whisper something into a friend's ear and they, it would go all around the circle. And then at the end, that person would say what they thought the, what the message actually had been. And it was really different. So it was sort of that kind of thing. It was something that got repeated over and over again, <clears throat> that had actually just been a fairly simple telephone survey to start with. And so Again, you know, the 70s was <clears throat> a while ago. And so we were interested, is it still accurate? Do we have anything more recent? Do we have anything that's more <clears throat> original research? And we came up, I believe, um, I don't have the article in front of me, Rebecca, maybe you do, that there were nine? I think seven, seven, seven primary sources, yep. So ultimately we were able to find seven articles that truly were primary sources um, <clears throat> where somebody had done original research uh, to look at rates. One of the other things that we found that we've already kind of touched on was that there was no um, consistent definition of what a braille reader was. So it's difficult to know if all the articles, if all the research questions from all those primary sources were actually asking the same thing, um, and that the sources of information were different in all of these studies as well. Um, so it's very difficult to do any kind of comparisons over time because none of the studies kind of looked at the question in the same way. You mentioned like looking looking through some articles and finding um, some sources that might have a better number. Um, is there a better number out there? Uh, this is Rebecca. We haven't found anything um, recently published, for example. So, I mean, if, if you wanted a more recent study, regardless of definition, we, we certainly haven't found nothing, nothing turned up. Um, you know, some folks would consider the um, annual reports that come out of the federal 
quota census from the American Printing House for the Blind as a source of this information, but um, in our article, we quote from the APH website, which makes it pretty clear that the APH federal quota numbers should not be used for estimates of, of Braille literacy. And of course, that would be specific to the student population, not, you know, not, not um, outside of K-12 for the most part. So, so we, um, we wouldn't recommend using the APH <laughs> um, um, quota reports as a source. So really, we would have to say that um, at this point, the most the most responsible thing, if if you're asked what is the Braille literacy rate, is to to dig into why you're asking that question. To admit that that our data is pretty problematic, um, and that um, that more work needs to be done, and that as a field, we're going to have in order to answer these questions, we're going to have to do some thinking about other questions like. How, how do we want to define Braille reader? How do we want to define the population from which our percentage is going to be derived? As well as, you know, what, what do we really want to know? And if, do you really just want to know the Braille literacy statistic? Or do you want to know, like we started off by off saying, and I think that um, Paul said it really well, is are, are the people who could benefit from Braille able to able to access it. And that is a whole nother research question connected, but but more complicated than just asking what is the Braille literacy rate. Paul, do you recall or would you care to hazard a guess uh, the first time you remember reading or hearing about this 10% figure for Braille literacy? <sighs> It, it, it's um, it's not a statistic um, uh, that I've that I've ever kind of paid much credence to. Um, I think that when when the Braille Revival League started, um, we we began to work on Braille issues because we felt that it was at risk. I mean, we saw we saw a number of trends that appeared to be symptomatic of problems that Braille was having. And, and I'll just list three or four of them so that folks get an idea of what they are. Um, one of them was that there, there appears to be a relatively ongoing decline in the number of Braille readers who are using the National Library Services books. Uh, why is this? Well, one, some folks would say it's because it's become more and more difficult to get the post office to handle these books. Some will say it's because more and more blind people are living in small apartments and there's just not room for Braille books in them. Other people would say it's symptomatic of the fact that older people who are blind um, are, are no longer with us and that they're not being replaced as quickly or as adequately by younger Braille readers who are coming into the system. But again, I absolutely agree with our three guests. We have nothing but anecdotal information mm -hmm. um, that, that we can use to, to make any of these claims. And, and part of the difficulty is that when, when, uh, the regular population is quoting with absolute assuredness 
what the literacy rate in the general population is. And, and when we as, as folks in the blindness field are asked the same question about Braille and are forced to say the truth is we don't have a clue. The truth is we have absolutely no idea. It really is a shame because it, it, it essentially enables folks to look at our field and suggest that, that we haven't paid attention to some of the most important questions that really need to be answered if, if, if we're going to develop systems that are both appropriate for folks who are blind, but more importantly, that get to the heart of where the problems are so that we can begin to at least think about making suggestions that will perhaps um, try to improve things instead of, instead of simply sitting back and letting things go the way they appear to be going now. Can there be a study that accurately, accurately measures blind or literacy? Um, and what could that include if so? It's Rebecca, I'll, I'll start, but I just, you know, I, I think I'm, I don't wanna to go back and hammer this point too much, but, but, but you, we really have to ask why, why you want to know like braille braille literacy or so so if, if, if we're talking about um for the purpose of um making decisions for the national library service then that really gives us a better context right to of, of the population that we're talking about which is those people who would be eligible for um to receive books and services from the nls and then, um but then we 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 still have to agree on, um, you know who who we're going to count as a braille reader. Somebody who who is cho who has checked out at least one book. Somebody who who checks yep. a box and says I'm a braille reader on the form. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I I think it can be done. But then that data set, um, you know we we need to document it really well so that we can repeat that study and use that data for the purpose for which it was intended. But it wouldn't be the same data set that that um, that a State Department of Education would want to use to make decisions about hiring um, teachers for the school districts, right, and how many Braille teachers they need, because those are two different populations and two different definitions of Braille reader. And this is FM, I would add <clears throat> that even um, the, when, when, they when um, the government looks at literacy statistics in general, they're actually, they talk about levels of literacy, for example, and that even the term literacy for anybody, for print readers or anyone, is kind of a slippery, um, <laughs> it's a slippery definition. I don't know, it's like you, you think you know it when you see it, um, but <laughs> it's, um, but they talk about levels of literacy as far as you know how it's being used and and what perhaps <clears throat> um, what approximate grade level it might be or something. We don't have anything right now that is similar to that in uh, in our field, but it certainly could be that might be something that would make sense to do that. We may also want to look at differences between children and adults or adults who acquire a visual impairment. Um, when I worked at AFB, which was um, a while ago, I was director of the Literacy Center. Um, we had a project where we um, were working with um, rehabilitation agencies and 
community-based literacy programs and trying to create um, connections between them because we found that there were people in at certain agencies who would have liked to have increased their literacy levels, but the materials from the community-based programs weren't accessible and the rehab agencies didn't have the literacy specialist. And so, I mean, again, it, I bring that up because it's a, it's a multifaceted issue. Um, depending on the population you're talking about and what that person's background is and their, so it's, you know, it's a very um, heterogeneous group of, of people. So whatever we, we want to find out those statistics, it always comes down to what are the definitions of what specifically we're we looking for. And then you can actually design a process to collect information in a consistent way. Paul, do you want to add anything to um, studies or how, like, if it matters how that person is? Well, I, I, obviously, I think it matters a lot. But I think that, that another thing we need to consider is there is a special problem that operates for, for the blind community. Um, and, and that is that, that one way of looking at literacy is, is by measuring braille reading. But are you really going to be in a position to say that a blind person is illiterate if they don't read braille, if they're reading 20 or 30 books from the National Library Service every week, um, if, if they're holding down a high-level job and doing it, utilizing um, you utilizing um, speech on a computer or some other system. So one of the issues that that we have to face as as the blindness community and really as consumers of blindness is that is that we are at least to a degree divided in terms of the way we ourselves would want to divide to to define what literacy means because folks who have partial vision have not learned braille folks who are blind who have diabetes who for whatever reason can't use braille would absolutely despise the notion of being described as illiterate especially given given what they've been able to accomplish so as a blindness field we have to be very careful um, how how we use the word literacy in terms of measuring the the if the effectiveness of our our whole educational system and and our whole self analysis that blind people go through in terms of in terms of looking at their own abilities. Paul, going back to uh, some of the comments made by our other guests earlier, do you uh -huh. think that there's other data out there that should be examined to potentially help yeah. uh, look into this issue more fully. Dr. Sheffield is, is in a much better position and so are, so are the other guys who are here um, than I am. I think they are right in terms of suggesting in their articles that, that perhaps a way forward is to look at state data. Um, I think, I, I think that that begins to give us some some measurable components, and it's it's relatively easily aggregated and probably would be quicker and and easier um, to acquire some data from. I you know I think any any data source on on a topic like this one is likely to be sort of slippery, but but I think that's a that's a really good place to start, and I and I hope somebody will um, the. I, I guess the one other thing that I'd say about um, developing these kinds of statistics is 
what we don't know right now, um, when we find out something, it, it may not get us in the direction that we want to go. Um, I, 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 I don't know if, if our guests would comment the the 10% has been kind of a myth and I get that, but do, do we think there is empirical evidence to suggest that the rate is higher or, or do we think that we just don't have enough empirical evidence to, to, to set a value on braille literacy at all? Rebecca, would you like to take that first? Um, well, I'll, I'll, try and talk about a related <laughs> question that, that came up in our research. So another aspect of, of this is, you know, of course, one question is, is it 10%? Yes or no? And I can't answer that. I can't answer. It's, it's, it's unlikely because there's so many other percentages it could be. Right? But, but another question is, has that rate been moving up or down? And uh, the conclusion of our article is we, we don't have evidence of of um, to, to support or deny that either. Um, right. there, there is a myth that there was this time in the past where, where Braille was everywhere and everybody was a Braille reader and we didn't find evidence to support that either, right? So, um, so the, the data is messy and it always has been. And there is, um, there are, are several articles that will will give you um, estimates that that there were relatively lower levels of braille reading among people, you know, back in back in the '60s and even before even before, where um, so so some of the some of those beliefs that that there was this panacea of braille in the past and that just every blind person was was getting instruction in braille um, that is also something that we need to um, we need to rethink where we got where where those assumptions are coming from but FM clean up, help clean up what I just said <laughs> um, no I, I think you said it very well is that you know again it's difficult to do comparisons because all the studies we found were you know didn't use the same definitions or the same data set but even in the original research that we found, we never found a time that uh, in any of those studies, even going back to, I think the first one we found was in the thirties that, you know, 70, 80%, 90% of the people were braille readers. That was never the case. And um, so, and all of this, by the way, in case we have not made it clear, and I know we're gonna get to this, but I just wanna say once more, None of this implies that Braille is not important or hasn't been important because we all, um, as authors of this article, one of the reasons we, we wanted to do this too is because we believe and know the importance of Braille. And so it seemed important to have some good information about it. But um, anyway, but you're, you're right, Rebecca, there, we, we were not able to find any studies that indicated that, oh yeah, there was a time when quote unquote, everyone was a, was a braille reader. Um, there have always been folks who, who used print, large print, audio, etc. Or, you know, um, 
didn't the Matilda Ziegler uh, magazine do like a, a New York Point version into the 60s? I mean, so <laughs> we remember in the early 1900s into, you know, into the 1930s, there were people who were using different kinds of Braille codes. We don't have to go into that right and, now. And the Matilda Ziegler e even had um, Moon on the cover, and, yeah. you know, until it stopped producing Braille, I think. Sarah, is there anything that you'd like to add on this uh, topic? Well, I, from a parent, but also a, um, a service provider, I was hoping we would find something, a study that was reproducible and comprehensive to a way of looking at uh, what it meant to be Braille literate. So then I could ask other questions of who are these um, people who are Braille literate? What access did they have? And so I could, you know, refine uh, the practice in the field so I could be more successful. And there's not that. Um, and I think the field would benefit uh, from questions like that. I am a mom of a Braille reader, and I cannot emphasize enough how important literacy is, a tactile form of literacy is. For some kids, um, it is a reliable, consistent way of accessing, you know, the nuances of the human experience, and I really believe in it. Um, and I also want to say we're in a, a place with you know, refreshable Braille displays where the access to Braille has never been uh, higher. Mm. I mean, there's still some things left to do there, but we have a full, we have so many things immediately available um, to Braille readers that have never been available before. And I, it's an exciting time to be teaching Braille. And I hope my, I don't think my son would necessarily say it's an exciting time to be a Braille reader, <laughs> But he sure does have access to any kind of book he finds interesting. And so I, I can't emphasize enough that Rebecca is right. Like Braille is an important, um, essential way for some people to access the world. It's just, um, it would have been nice to have found something, like I said, that was reproducible and comprehensive when it came to Braille literacy. And I agree with FM that we are looking at a very, uh, different it is a demographic that is not at all homogenous and so when you begin to ask those questions you encounter a lot of other questions that make you know finding that answer difficult uh, sarah paul was mentioning the the efforts that could be done to look at state level braille literacy data um, that's pretty similar to an effort that's underway right now by the, the Vision Serve Alliance and the National Coalition on Aging in Vision Loss mm -hmm. to look into the number of older Americans with vision loss and the level of services being provided on a state-by-state -state basis. Um, how will that, uh, if that data is available on the state level for uh, Braille literacy, how could that aid the research and policy efforts in this arena. Um, Rebecca, do you mind if I answer this first? Go for it. <laughs> so I'm in a great position because I live and am raising a, a braille reader in Wyoming, which is a very rural state, but I work in California in the Bay Area, which is a very sort of densely urban area. Um, my son was probably the only person who was taking his grade level state test in Braille. And um, the governor knows this because I write him long letters about it, but 
it was a it was an inaccessible test. It was ordered in and uh, the an incorrect form of braille code. Um, so, so to a certain extent from a person in Wyoming, there should be a standard, no matter how many braille readers there are, like, because my son is the only braille reader to take the fifth grade test. There needs to be a standard um, so that everyone has to follow that state standard uh, because I am, I'm the mom of the one kid who needed that one test. And I really believe there needs to be that one, uh, that policy in place. But on the other side, as a teacher who encounters, you know, the, 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 the shortages in our field in urban areas, having um, an idea of what to tell the state of California on how these tests should be written, we can also, that also gives us the ability to give them quality indicators on how test questions can be biased against people who have little or no vision. For example, asking a, a test question about the moon would be really biased against someone who doesn't have any awareness of what, or a very little awareness of what the moon might look like. Um, so I think that um, when we think about policies and how the Braille literacy rate is pushing that. Um, I'm sorry, the, the state testing always gets me a little bit riled up because I'm the mom <laughs> out there, like banging the pots and pans because it doesn't matter if there's this one kid, there's the one kid who needs it. Um, but I do think we need to be able to go to states with an advocacy piece, like it's an advocacy piece. The, the number of Braille readers can tell us when we go to uh, places that that make those refreshable braille displays that so that we can go to states and say, hey, this is, you need to have a way of encouraging teachers to become TVIs or teachers of uh, students with deaf blindness um, because this is the most reliable way they have access to the world. And we need to have some sort of standards here so that when we're teaching those students, we have a way to measure their progress and make sure that we're, we're putting kids out into the world that can, you know, been for themselves that have a way that means of literacy so that they can self-advocate and especially coming off of COVID like the people who did not have these things really suffered not just in like the testing and medical but just getting basic supplies like this is a I think one of the lessons that came out of the pandemic was people who didn't have reliable means of literacy really really had really suffered the most. Rebecca, is there anything you'd like to add? Oh, absolutely, Sarah. Um, you know, I've had the opportunity to be a TBI in the U.S. Virgin Islands, and um, and as well as in the in the great state of Texas. And those are, you know, two very different contexts where um, where advocating for Braille literacy, um, you know, was was met with questions like, well, there's only so many students who are going to benefit from that and in, in one situation or, you know, in another situation, oh, we've got a state school for the blind. We will, you know, we've, we've got all these resources. Let me put you in touch with, with so-and-so. But um, then it, and it's, it's uh, you know, 
across the United States, every state has its has its own challenges, but there are certainly um, places where um, where we we have a lot long way to go in and getting just some of the basics like addressing yes you need the TVI in place and then um, where where we do have have systems in place as Sarah said is so important that we can use data to make to help help start making. Um, it helps start advocating for high quality instruction, um, having qualified Braille transcribers and explain, being able to explain what the port, importance of that is and supporting people to go, who want to go into that profession. Um, all, all of this is, can, can be connected to having good data. Great, thank you. And uh, F, FM, I know that uh, Sarah's passion is a, a hard act to follow on this topic. I'm sure our listeners will enjoy it as much as we have, but is there anything uh, anything that Sarah or Rebecca, uh, in addition to the remarks of Sarah and Rebecca that you'd like to add? Um, yeah, and I would advocate for good data in, in every way. We already know that the annual federal child count um, of which is required <clears throat> um, of how many students with different disabilities are in are receiving services in the United States. We already know that our students with visual impairments are undercounted and have been severely undercounted for decades. And so because many of our students have other disabilities as well, or they're being served in other settings. And so um, since states are only required to um, report primary disability areas, many of our kids who are visually impaired and maybe have another disability, are uh, there's a severe undercount. So we know that there are some states that do a nice job of um, reporting data about all, all the students in their state, including students who are blind or visually impaired, but it's not required. And so anything that we want to advocate for like this, which is you know really good data about our students, um, we really need to start advocating for that and pushing for that so that it's a required piece of reporting that has to be done and not just um, you know, up to individual states to capture that information. So um, yeah, I'm glad this is the ACB advocacy um, <laughs> podcast because it's really important that we advocate for, um, for actual requirements for these data to be collected. And, and you know, again, I live in the K-12 world, <clears throat> but we really need to be thinking about um, for adults as well, and are adults getting the services that they they deserve? Um, there's some really great research being done by Mississippi State, um, their national um, research and training center is doing some wonderful research related to employment of people with visual impairments and people who are deafblind, and they're looking at all kinds of different nuances, not just employed or not. They're also looking at part-time employment or health related things and that kind of thing. Um, I know um, there's some research 
there's a researcher in Canada who's looking at older adults and their access to Braille instruction, uh, Natalie Martiniello. So there are people who are doing some really good work and we need to keep supporting those people and also advocating for this um, this kind of research to be done systematically and reported um, more widely. And, and Paul, a, a lot of these touch on advocacy areas, on ways that we can improve access to data um, to inform you know, policies and the availability of resources. Um, do you think that there are other avenues that ACB, our special education task force and uh, the Braille Revival League and other affiliates should be pursuing um, to expand access to Braille and uh, hopefully increase the Braille literacy rate. One of the things that the Braille Revival League has started to do this year is to reach out to other agencies outside of um, ACB, not consumer organizations, but uh, organizations that are in the business of providing services to people who are blind. We've held two meetings so far, uh, one with Hadley and one with the National Braille Press. And our objective is to try to build cooperative relationships and, and then to work together to develop ways of highlighting the importance and the need for Braille uh, in, in broader areas of the country, um, using these other agencies and de developing some partnerships that we hope will get more folks who are involved in ACB involved in actually reaching out and becoming volunteers within systems. The fact is that there are many blind people who are excellent Braille readers who who could be amazing resources um, for kids in school systems who are learning Braille. Uh, there are all kinds of opportunities, it seems to me, um, for adults who are blind, who are already doing things like playing games and doing a number of other things using Braille to interact with kids while they're in school, to try to get them involved in seeing that Braille isn't simply a question of reading boring old textbooks. It's also a question of playing games. It's also a question of labeling your CDs so you don't have to ask mom and dad to do stuff for you. It's using the example of those of us who are consumers and who regard Braille as almost sacrosanct, um, who can help to sell it to other kids to whom it may not be, have been sold as effectively as it could have or should have been um, by teachers who aren't jumping up and down at the prospect of teaching Braille. What next? What do we go from, go from here? Um, so I, th I think we, we um, concluded our article by saying that, um, you know, although we may not know the exact number or percentage of Braille readers, None of this implies that Braille is unimportant or less important now than in the past. And in fact, it's it's the only reading and writing system that allows independent access to information. And given that, and given that um, that that what everybody wants is is access to to the to the same opportunities and quality of life, and that we know that that literacy is a key component of that, we. We can't um, we can't drop the ball. We also can't keep doing what we ha what has been done in the past, which is um, you know using a number that that 
we don't know, we didn't know where it came from, or we, we didn't even try and cite where it came from in some articles, some of our articles in the past, you know, we have to hold ourselves to, um, to a high standard and keep this issue at the forefront of, um, of the, of a very long research agenda in our field. And there, there aren't all that many researchers to do the work, but, um, but as we've identified in our conversation today, it's connected to so many of the, um, the goals and the outcomes that, that, large, um, that, that so many of the stakeholders in this conversation are interested in that, um, that we just have to keep moving, moving forward um, and um, deciding where we can come to agreement and, and on, on certain definitions and questions and begin putting systems in place to systematically and reliably and repeatedly collect the data that we need, and also um, to adv advocate where there are larger systems that should be collecting data to support our, our, um, our students, our, our adults. I think what needs to come next is collaboration. I think one of the things that one of the things that we found over the past couple of years um, in, in developing the program on aging that you talked about earlier, Clark, is that the collaboration among agencies to develop and implement a long range plan um, for, for trying to improve access to services for that population and to try to assure um, that we find ways to support their needs, which currently the federal government and really state governments aren't supporting effectively. I think the same thing can actually be said of Braille. We, we need the same kind of long range uh, in-depth planning that puts, that puts data collection at its center, but also recognizes the value of Braille and the importance of developing and implementing systems that assure that every child and every adult who has the opportunity to benefit from learning Braille is given that opportunity. And right now we're far from that in this country. Mm. And Paul, just to back that up, I think we need teachers who have access to a lot of good data about how that needs to be done. And we need to have lots of really well-educated Braille teachers out there. Um, so I, a big thank you to our guests, um, Paul Edwards, president of the Braille Revival League, um, at least when this podcast was recorded, right, Paul? <laughs> Correct. And uh, Dr. Rebecca Sheffield, Dr. Francis Mary DeAndre, and Sarah uh, Chatfield, thank you all for the work that you did in delving into this topic, um, set, shedding some light on uh, where this data has come from, the, the state of data on Braille literacy. Uh, maintaining its relevance and importance, and also sharing with us you know, why it's important going forward. So I know our members in ACB, uh, we're eager to see what you all come up and read what you all come up with next. Uh, and if there's any way that ACB and the Braille Re Revival League can be helpful advocates related to education and Braille literacy, we look forward to working with you in the future. And we will wrap up this podcast, Swatha, by uh, doing what ACB and our members do best. Keep advocating.
This episode of the ACB Advocacy Update has been made possible in part through the support of ACB of Minnesota. 